You may find this episode a little different, but it is a true Southern story. This episode of Backwindow is intended to shake some illusions that many incomers have about the South. I don't use incomers in a pejorative sense. We are all incomers, even those who crossed the Bering Straits over 10,000 years ago. There are some regional stereotypes that do need to be addressed. I hate the notion that all Southern women folk wore hoop skirts to the cotillion at the plantation or even wanted to. Most Southern women chopped firewood, washed clothes in iron cauldrons, and worked in the fields beside the men. Most of our men folk didn't own a white suit, and while there was a bit of bourbon consumed, most didn't even have a veranda. That may be a teeny exaggeration of what newcomers in the South believe. It is just as exaggerated to believe that we're all ignorant, missing multiple teeth and brain cells. We come from all sorts of roots, and I want to put some fresh eyes on a couple of real stories. These two are from my father's family. My paternal grandmother was Kate Lackey. She grew up on a family farm in Lower Chester County. I don't mean acres and acres of cotton and tobacco. You could probably encircle the entire farm on foot in 15 minutes. Kate's mother, my great-grandmother, Sarah Bailey Lackey, took care of the children and fed the chickens and did the washing and cleaning herself. Water was pumped from a well and brought into the house in buckets. Food was cooked on a wood-burning stove, and the wood was cut and split by Sarah or her husband, William Henry Billy Lackey, or by one of her older boys. There were four boys, Roscoe, Greer, William Jennings, and Gibb. Mamie was the only girl until Kate came along later. Besides the few acres of cotton, the family also had a personal garden to raise food for themselves. The entire farm was worked by Billy Lackey and a mule. It was the same mule he rode to church to lead the choir in the Armenian Methodist Church. The children, as soon as they were old enough, were put to work feeding the chickens or milking the cow or taking over whatever chores they were able to do. Billy's wife, Sarah, would sometimes take his lunch to him in the field and he would sit with her under a tree for a few minutes while he ate. She would then take the plate and cup and flatware back into the house. She did this even when she was pregnant with one of the children. On that day, that awful day in 1888, she was two months pregnant with my grandmother, Kate Lackey, and may not have even been aware of her condition. She started back to the house as the cloud darkened the sky to the west. It didn't look like much of a storm, just a few dark clouds in an otherwise hazy blue June sky. Billy Lackey continued to plow, following the mule to cut furrows in the red clay to clear weeds out from between the rows. When the rain started, Billy pushed the plow handles down to lift the blade out of the earth and guided the mule to shelter under a large oak at the edge of the field. Sarah Lackey gathered the children in the house as the rain started. It was a fast-moving cloud, and she only heard one crack of thunder. 
She spent the next hour getting ready to put supper on the table for Billy and the five children. When he didn't come back as evening fell, she went out into the twilight to check on him. She found him under the big oak. The trees still smoked from the lightning strike, and William Henry Lackey and the mule both lay dead at the base of the split trunk. He was 28 years old. My grandmother, Kate Lackey, was born the following Valentine's Day, 1889. Sarah and the older children took over the work raising the family and working the farm. Family members and friends helped. My paternal grandfather, William Robs Hill, was also born in Chester County near Bullock's Creek. His mother died giving birth to him, and he was, in his words, passed from pillar to post, living with different family members. Always called Robs, he attended school for only about a week. There were no laws requiring him to stay in school. He was curious enough and wanted to learn to read, so his older sister taught him until he had the basics. She then told him if he wanted to get any better, he would have to teach himself. He did exactly that and was an avid reader all his life, even teaching an adult Sunday school class for years. Somewhere between ages 9 and 11, Robs began his lifelong career. He went to work in a Lockhart cotton mill as a doffer, along with many other children, boys and girls. Because he was a hard worker and could read and write at a time when many mill workers could not, he was quickly promoted and was a shift supervisor at age 14. Robs was a small man at 5 feet 6 inches and weighed around 130 pounds with rocks in his pockets. He often had boys working on his shift who were much bigger and older than he. He recalled having to fight grown men to establish his authority. Even though Robs had moved up to management over the years, the Great Depression showed no favoritism. When the mill announced that it was closing, Robs Hill was 42 years old. He took his final paycheck and bought bulk supplies to prepare for an uncertain future. My father, who's only six or seven, remembers when Robs and his older sons, Elmo and Ray, brought in 50-pound bags of flour and cornmeal and sacks of sugar. There were also cans of vegetables and meats and large tin containers of cooking oil and lard. They were luckier than some families. The mill owner still allowed him to live for a time in the house they owned. Robs looked for work wherever he could find it and even sold insurance door to door for a while. The insurance job didn't last. During depression, nobody wants to buy something as nebulous as insurance. The recovery from the Great Depression was slow in the South and in 1939, when the mills around Union, South Carolina still hadn't reopened, a good friend, Lois Bailey, wrote my grandfather to let him know if there was an opening in a plant in Fort Mill. Elliott Springs had kept the mills running during the Depression, and with a recommendation from Mr. Bailey, Robs got the job and moved his family to a small house on Still Street. My father, Robert Charles Hill, was a rising senior in high school and reluctantly left the Union High Yellow Jackets to become a Fort Mill Yellow Jacket. 
head football coach Troy in Union tried to arrange for Dad to stay on his team, but my father chose to be with his family. Dad tried out for the Fort Mill football team and was immediately part of the team. At 6'1 and 220 pounds, he was the biggest player Fort Mill had ever seen. He got his size from his mother's side of the family. He entered Fort Mill High School for the 1939-1940 school year and was immediately elected senior class president. He graduated, married Dorothy Case, my mother, and spent four years in the Marines before returning to Fort Mill to begin his career. The rest is his story, and he told it in a book he wrote for his grandchildren. His book is called Listen, My Children, and is available at bookstores nowhere, but every child and grandchild has one. In reflecting on the history of my family and the South, it would be neglectful and callous not to acknowledge that millions of black Americans are descended from African ancestors who were torn from their families and homeland and sold as slaves to work the land. I'm sure that some of my ancestors must have been among those slaveholders. It is a horrific legacy and cannot be either swept under the carpet of history or excused as the way things were. I was born with white privilege from people with the stain of red clay on their overalls and the sweat of hard work on their brows. I tell the story of my father's family with pride, but I tell it for a purpose. For those ancestors who prospered from the slave labor of black Americans, I am truly sorry that such an institution was allowed to begin and to grow so pervasive when people argue that the South continued holding slaves long after they should have, I can only answer that the first minute of slavery was too long. There is much work to be done to repair the injustices that linger into the present and to mend the rifts that now threaten to divide us racially and economically. I pray that we can build a nation where pride and opportunity are universal Justice for one is justice for all, and the road to the future is wide enough for all of us to walk side by side.